But right now we're going to read from God's Word. And at City Light we believe that the Bible is God's Word. And as it's read and taught faithfully and accurately, that's God speaking to us. And so I'm going to open up to Matthew 15, 1 to 20. And the reading will come up for you on the screen as well. Matthew 15, sentence 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what he might have used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their mother and father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Do you not see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth from, are from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not. This is the word of God. Um, great to be with you guys. My name is Jacob, if uh, we haven't met yet. And it is so nice to be back together and a big welcome if you're here for the first time. Um, uh, despite what it looks like, we haven't instituted a new City Light uniform as we've reopened. We've just both gone for the same look, which I call predictable white guy. And so um, if you want to be, uh, get some advance notice about what's trending at City Light so you can also come along, feel free to put it on the slips. We'll send out a weekly newsletter about what direction we're going to be going each and every week so you can jump on board with that. Um, as Jez said, we're going to be working our way through the uh, Gospel of Matthew, which we've been doing since a long time now. I can't remember when we started it. Um, and the, the passage that was just read to us is what we're going to be working through. So if you're here first time at church, we're just going to be kind of making our way through that part of Scripture and reflecting on that together now. And, um, and this particular passage um, starts with what I would call a power move. Now, can I just get a show of hands? Just who's familiar with the concept of a power move? Anyone listens to Hamish and Andy podcast, I think they've kind of made it very popular. But basically, a power move is just something you can work into conversation or a situation to, to elevate yourself uh, and your kind of authority while probably at the same time putting someone else down. So a classic one would be when someone tells like a, you know, a, a joke or a story, just to say to them, that's good from you. Because it sounds like a compliment, but it also kind of puts out that maybe normally their stories or their jokes aren't that good. Um, they're often very subtle like that. Another one would just be to go up to someone and say, say to them, look, I wish I was more like you, not having to worry about what people think of me. And that just leaves them wondering what is it about their appearance or their demeanor that makes you think that they don't care what people think of them. But there's a whole category of power moves which um, would be kind of making, making out like someone else is doing the wrong thing so you look like you're doing the right thing. 
We actually got um, my dad a, a book of power moves for Christmas a couple of years ago. So there's a few that have made their way into our family. And one that gets used quite a bit is when you're sitting down at a family meal. I've got two brothers. To, as soon as you sit down, um, I, I turn to my mum and say, thanks, mum, for making this delicious meal. And then without skipping a beat, you turn to your sibling and say, weren't you going to thank mum for making a delicious meal? Because then they've only got two choices, which is either, either not thank mum, looking like a bad son, or to then do it, but it's like they're only doing it because they've been told to. So th- that's, what it, that's a power move. There's a, there's a really famous one in, in the Christian world. I don't know if it's been called this, but if you've been you know, at, a, at, a, at a meal with a bunch of Christians, this has probably happened either to you or maybe you've done it yourself, which is when often it's good at a restaurant when the food comes out, someone's food comes out you know, first. Maybe it's like a burger with chips. And when they take a bite of a chip, you, you go at them and say, oh, weren't you going to say grace? And in that process, you can turn something as innocuous as eating a single chip into a, a representation that this person is a, uh, a, a heathen uh, person who's got no interest in pleasing God. Well, you, the grace-sayer, are the, are the God-fearer, the, the true Christian. That's kind of what's going on there. And they're kind of, kind of like jokey examples. But I think as, as far as things go, most of us do kind of like that feeling when we can be in a position where we can say, look, we, we've got it right. We're the good ones. We're the ones who have kind of got it figured out. And this other group, this other person is somehow amoral. We live in a really moralistic society, despite the fact that most people, I think, would describe themselves in some way as being kind of moral relativists, which is that there's no fixed, objective moral standard to live up to. But we, we as a society, find all kinds of opportunities to make ourselves seem like we're in the right and others are in the wrong. Even with this pandemic over over the last year, I think most of us, maybe at some time or another, have had that kind of inner feeling that we've got it right in getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated, in being uh, submissive to what the government says or being rebellious and, 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 and paving our own way, in being you know, risk-averse to the, ty- the right amount or being uh, risk-avoidant. We find these kind of ways to say, look, we, we've, we've got it right, we've got it right, and other people have got it wrong. And, it, and I think another demonstration of this is often in our arguments about kind of hot-button issues, one of the, the arguments or even argument stoppers that, that come out time and time again is to say to someone, because of your view, you are going to be on the wrong side of history. That is that, that your moral failure will be forever condemned and be exposed as being on the wrong side. And often that's a really kind of powerful thing or a painful thing to even hear against you because deep down we want to be right. We want to be on the right side. We want to have it figured out. And this passage we're looking at today, Jesus is dealing with a group of people who were renowned, who were known for setting themselves up as being right when everyone else around them is wrong. Who, I guess, go about making their business of even of showing or, or speaking in such a way that shows that they are moral people, that they can't be questioned, that they are right, and those who don't live up to their standard are wrong. And what we're going to be getting into as we unpack these verses is some, I think, really helpful wisdom for us in living in a society that really cares about these things. Where we at times can maybe just fear not being moral enough or not being right. And we're going to be getting to a central part of Jesus' teaching, which is that true morality is a matter of the heart. So I'm just going to pray now, and then we're just going to to work our way verse by verse through this passage. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that we can gather again as your people. Um, and we just pray that as we look at your word now, that you would be helping us uh, learn what you want us to learn, to see what you want us to see, and to respond how you want us to respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first, I think, significant 
thing we see as we work our way through this passage is that God sets the standard for morality, not culture. Like I said, Jesus' interaction begins with a, a question about tradition and there's basically a power move that the Pharisees bring to Jesus. The passage starts, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So you can kind of see what they're doing here. They're not living in the COVID world. It wasn't a hand sanitizer that the disciples are meant to be using. Um, this isn't purely a, a hygiene question. They're not just being grubs. It's this particular question of morality. It's the Pharisees coming and saying, look at them, look what they're doing. Why aren't they as good as us? So the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time. They had a whole bunch of rules that they would kind of hold to. Some of those rules they lived out were found in, in the law, which is this instructions for life that God had handed down to his people, the people of Israel, many years before. And there were rules in there around hand washing and eating and that kind of thing. But beyond that, the Pharisees also had a bunch of additional rules and customs that they had set up to kind of add on to this law, to kind of make themselves even greater. And so it's really clear from the question that they're asking, they're not asking the question, why do your disciples break the law? But they specifically ask Jesus, why do they break the tradition? That there was some kind of ceremonial hand-washing practice that had arisen beyond the law that had become a cultural marker for morality. And so the charge against the disciples of Jesus was they're not living up to this standard. They're not doing this. Therefore, they are, they are wrong. They're not virtuous people. Now, that's probably a bit of a, a different sort of cultural kind of marker of morality to what we would have like today. There's different ones that people kind of have. They're not all bad or anything, but like sometimes people have on their Facebook, on their display picture, some kind of overlay that kind of shows that I'm behind this cause, whatever the cause might be. Or it might be, you know, a business kind of having that stamp of kind of carbon neutral, which is really kind of hot button at the moment. But just kind of these things that we might incorporate into our lives in different ways, not all bad, but to kind of show this is a sign that I'm, I've got it right. I'm on the right side of things. And that's the accusation that's, that's, that's coming out, is that because they're not doing this hand washing, that they're not on the right side of things. And so then Jesus responds to the Pharisees then with another question, as he often, often does. Verse 3 says, he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, it's a bit, maybe a little bit confusing what's going on there, but as Jesus is pressed with this question and this allegation against the disciples, he returns another one. And he gives this really specific example. One of the Ten Commandments um, is honor your father and mother. So that's pretty straightforward. But in Jesus' time, that didn't just mean kind of feel good towards them or say nice things about them. This is before Centrelink, before superannuation, pensions, that kind of thing. So a common practice, a way of honoring your father and mother in Jesus' time was when your parents would get too old to work, you of working age would continue to provide for them, to feed them, to make sure they looked after, to house them, that kind of thing. But the Pharisees had developed this kind of side rule where people who perhaps for some reason wanted to kind of you know, spite their parents or nothing to do with them could get out of this obligation to care for them by coming forward and saying, I guess publicly, the money that I was going to give to my mum and dad, I'm instead giving to God. And I guess the idea and the logic of the Pharisees was because God is more important than your parents, that's like a valid way to get out of this obligation to care for your parents. But Jesus' 
point to them is that you've made this tradition, this weird kind of custom that you've made up about handing money and declaring it for God, to get out of obeying God's authority in his law. He's saying that you've made tradition the highest authority, this thing that you've got to live up to, and in doing so, are ignoring what God actually wants. So he's saying, Pharisees, before you come and lecture me on tradition, take a look at yourselves. You've actually, you're meant to be the religious people, but you're making tradition more important, your way of doing things more important than God himself and his word to us. Now, I think as Jesus kind of points out this conflict that they have between upholding tradition versus actually upholding the law itself, it raises something that we need to grapple with as people who, um, who believe there's a God or people who are open to that or exploring that, where we find ourselves often having to, to weigh up conflicting claims of authority in our life, conflicting claims of what is the good or the right or the moral way to act. And this is a grapple I think we've all got, uh, a wrestle we've all got to work through. Because if there is a God who transcends this world and who created it with a purpose and meaning, that, that comes with it I guess, a being who has the authority to decide what is right and wrong. But even though many of us in this room would believe that, we find ourselves in a, a secular society that, for the most part, has dismissed this concept of a God. And so without that God, there's a void in terms of where moral authority would come from. And so we've got to look elsewhere. And the main place people look is, is inward to our own feelings and reasoning. And then beyond that, to, I guess, the collective feelings and reasonings of this society that we live in. And our society, together, has come up with a whole bunch of things that it said is right and other things that it said are wrong. And often, those end up at odds with what God would say in his word in the Bible. And this is across a whole bunch of different kind of areas. So, for example, like just one because it's kind of clear and apparent and I think we're familiar with it, is the idea of sexuality. There's a, a quite a divergence with what God says around sexuality and what, I guess, our society at large says about sexuality. God says in his word that sexuality is reserved for the lifelong commitment of marriage. And so expressions outside of this, in, in, you know, from pornography to taking multiple sexual partners or, or even being sexually active in a committed relationship before marriage, is at odds with what God says in his word. Whereas our world would say a really different thing, this side of the sexual um, kind of liberation movement, would say that your body is yours, and at the end of the day, it is good to do whatever you want with it as long as it doesn't harm others. And in fact, to restrict or inhibit your own sexual expression is harmful or amoral. So you find, that you find yourself at odds here. If you're living in, in Sydney and you're trying to follow God, you find immediately, just, and this is just one area out of, out of dozens, where God's authority and what he says of what is right and wrong isn't the same as what our society thinks. And so there's a decision to be made. It's a key thing that every person trying to follow Jesus has to work out for themselves, which is what is the main authority you're going to follow? Where are you going to take your cues about what is right or wrong? Is the main thing that's going to inform your decisions about how you weigh things up, to look around and say, well, what, is, what does everyone around me think? What is everyone else doing? Well, what does God want? What does God say? To decide, you know, am I going to try to get a, avoid tax because that's what everyone does? Or am I going to be happy to gossip and talk about people because that's what everyone does? Or is it going to be to say God has actually spoken into this, that he speaks with authority? Jesus is laying out the difference, the two ways of approaching how to figure out the question of what is right and what is wrong. 
But as you kind of even hear that and start thinking about it, I wonder how you kind of feel, even about that example I used around sexuality, which I was kind of <laughs> weighing up using, where there's maybe a part of us when we hear that, we think, well, that's, that's uncomfortable. That's actually, um, uh, that's difficult to try to be a different way and to believe something different to what the world around us is saying. There's even something that feels a little bit offensive in even saying that. Which leads us to the next part of this passage where we see this really the same accusation leveled against Jesus. Because making your moral authority different to the world is often a cause of offence. In finishing his rebuttal against the Pharisees, Jesus proceeds with this. He says in verse 10, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? So in just a moment, we'll come back to what Jesus is saying about what goes into the mouth and out of the mouth. But what's interesting here is how the disciples respond to him in this moment. You can imagine them coming up to Jesus and saying the equivalent of, like, Jesus, you can't say that. They're saying, Jesus, do you know that when you just said that, you actually offended these Pharisees? Maybe they felt the awkwardness or the discomfort of Jesus publicly going against the cultural norms in this way. And he's got that feeling that you have sometimes when you're like, at the Christmas dinner and that family member who says really inappropriate things stands up and says something and you just kind of want to bury yourself in the ground. And I think we feel this. We often feel this because we live in a society that is hypersensitive to offense. We don't like offending people. If, you, you know, if you're a, a, a sane, normal person, you don't like offending people. Um, and it's everywhere. Even at home, there'll be some days that you know, we live in an apartment and me and Sarah will be talking about something and I sometimes talk quite loud and I sometimes get quite passionate. And we'll be talking about something and she'll go, shh. And I'll say, like, why are you shushing me? There's, there's no one else here. And she's like, no, I don't want the neighbours to hear. Um, and then I have to remember, yes, I forgot I'm living in an Orwellian 1984 nightmare where you can't speak your own views. But, <laughs> but also, like, not to be mean to Sarah, I get where she's coming from, right? Because I feel the same thing, where I don't want our neighbours to think that we're kind of weird, really. And it's not when we're talking about something to do with Christianity. I don't want our neighbours to think we're weird religious people that think things completely different to what they think. And I think most of us feel the same way. We don't want to be perceived in that way. So we're hyper aware of offense. And that's the disciples' concern, that, that Jesus is being offensive here in laying out this distinction. And to that, Jesus says what I would even take to be a more offensive phrase following. This is in verse 13. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So in response to the allegation of him being offensive, he says, look, look, look at these guys. They're basically weeds. They're not meant to be there. They've sprung up where they're not wanted or needed. They don't know where they're going. They're going to wander into a pit with anyone else that follows. And so I, I take this to be Jesus' way of saying, at the end of the day, offending these people is the least of their worries because they're going to have to stand before God. Their, their, their time is up. They're, they're going to be... God will have an answer for them. Which is uh, uh, not the answer I would have chosen, but it's what Jesus says here. So I think that the lesson to draw from this difficult part of Scripture, and maybe it's a bit of a counterbalance to our own way of thinking about things, is that Jesus doesn't hold our exact sensitivities about being offensive. Now to be really clear, Jesus' aim wasn't to cause offense, but his aim isn't to avoid offense either. And so when people come to Jesus to kind of guilt him into conforming to their practices and behavior and standards, Jesus is willing to make himself distinct from them by calling out hypocrisy when it needs to happen, 
by calling out inconsistency or even harmful behavior, even if that is perceived as being offensive. There are aspects to Jesus' life and teaching which, as uncomfortable as it might be, are offensive to those who have taken another standard of truth, another standard of moral authority for their lives. And there are going to be times, if you're someone who would describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, to, to walk with him and submit to him will put you in situations where you might be seen as being offensive. And that's okay. Now, I want to really say, though, if you're someone who's just been kind of waiting to get the green light from the front, to jump on Facebook, change your profile picture to something without your face in it, and your name to something with all capitals, and post a bunch of crazy stuff on the internet, this is not me or Jesus giving you the green light for that. Because a lot of offense isn't good offense, and and Christians have got, I think, fairly a, a reputation for being inconsiderate and rude sometimes. And so we don't want to be those people who are going out to cause offense for the sake of it, or feeling good about doing that, but to simply recognize there are some things that are inherent to the message of Christianity and the worldview that comes with it that are going to be seen by offensive, by different cultures and different times in different ways. And then there are going to be things in following Jesus that are offensive to all kind of groups of people, and even across like the political spectrum. There are parts of Christianity that are really, I think, offensive to people who are ultra-conservative and kind of right-wing and on the, and the right side of things. For example, Jesus has this insistence in his teaching that his church, his followers, should be multiracial, multi-ethnic. They should value diversity and inclusion. And to some people, that's a really offensive teaching, particularly for people who have tied like Western culture and Christianity together to say that kind of Christianity is part of Western culture and Western culture is the best. To hear Jesus tear that down. And say, no, it's got nothing to do with Western culture. This is a global movement of people of all languages and backgrounds. That's an offensive thought. People get offended by that idea. Probably not as many here in this room. Or the insistence that Jesus has that the church has a responsibility to help the poor and that those who have should share with those who have not is an offensive idea to people who feel like their money is their own, that they have earned it, it is theirs, it is their right, and everyone else should worry about themselves. Parts of Jesus' teaching that are offensive to, 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 to those groups. But the reality is that Jesus' teachings in many ways are offensive to those on the left. And like realistically, we're in the inner west. It's not exactly the Bible belt. This is going to be more kind of more with us. And some of these are really difficult topics. But like for exa- an example would be on the topic of abortion, to say that you believe that human rights exist even to humans that aren't born yet is offensive to people who take a different view. Or to hold a vision of marriage and sexuality that's between one man and a woman for life is going to be offensive to people who have a different view on marriage, that it's maybe more of a thing that we can make for ourselves and and change as we see fit. And those are really sensitive topics. I know that they are, and we want to be people who can talk about those with care and sensitivity. And even if you're here and that's that's triggered something for you or that's confronted you, we, we want to actually open up conversation and be able to talk to you about these things. But there needs to be this recognition that there are going to be times where there is offense in following Jesus. And I think it's a helpful counterbalance to some of the fear that we have that where where being offensive can be the worst possible thing. Because none of these things about following Jesus are, are particularly controversial when it comes to New Testament historic Christianity. So then on the other side of it, then, well, does that, we're just going to go in full circle to say, look, 
the Pharisees are judgmental, they shouldn't be judgmental, but now because Christians have got this authority, we can be the judgmental people. We can go out there and say what is right, what is wrong, and kind of look down on others. But there's actually one more thing I want to draw from Jesus' teaching that I think gives us the grounds as his followers to actually be more, to be, to be humble, to be a humble people. I was going to say more humble, but that's like not a humble thing to say. Um, to actually have true humility. And that's Jesus' teaching about the source of evil and the human heart. In explaining what Jesus just said about, you know, being worried about what goes into the mouth, not what comes out of the mouth, he explains it further in verse 15. It says, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus' point about the Pharisees being concerned about this external thing like hand washing or other things they're concerned about like eating and the like is that doing that puts the focus of what makes someone good or bad or whatever on some external factor, on what they do or even just what they, how they clean themselves. But Jesus wants to make the point that the thing that matters most is internal. And it's quite like crass language, really, if you think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you're concerned about food. Well, what does food do? It goes into the stomach and it comes out and then it's excrement. Is that what you're going to focus on? Is that what you're going to spend your life caring about? Something that at the end of the day is, is, is poo. That's kind of the, the illustration, kind of crass. But Jesus is saying, look, you've actually got something bigger and more significant to worry about. The heart. Because look at what the heart can produce. It produces evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. That we've got a part of us, something in us that is just capable of, of, of evil. And that's our biggest problem. And I think if you can understand that every single one of us has this issue within, within us, that is it's something we each have to confront for ourselves, and that's actually the key to not being, I guess, moralistic and judgmental of others. I started watching, uh, trying to watch movies with my son, River, who's not two yet, so he's still a bit young and he doesn't really get through more than 10 minutes. But I've tried flicking on some Disney movies lately. And, and one of the things that's just different, I've just, you know, just re-realized about kids' movies to, I guess, more you know, advanced literature, is that the, the kids' movies are pretty simple and straightforward, particularly around who is good and who is bad. So in Aladdin, Aladdin's good and Jafar is bad. In Little Mermaid, Ariel's good and Ursula is bad. It's pretty kind of clear-cut and, and, and simple. But in like, you know, really good novels and good movies and that kind of thing, you have characters that have some kind of internal struggle, some kind of internal divide, where they're kind of weighing up and wrestling through their two natures. They shift and they change and they develop. And I think sometimes we fall into the trap of looking at people actually in a really childish, simplistic way, which is just to say, look, they're the baddies, we're the goodies. We're right, they're wrong. And whatever the group might be, whether that's you know, conservatives or progressives or atheists or like religious fanatics, that there is some kind of group out there that they're the problem and we're the solution. But Jesus really wants to speak against that teaching. He says that's not how, where the divide falls. He says that the divide is in us, that every single one of us has a heart that is capable of evil, that we have a problem. There is something, something deeply wrong with us inside. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, a Russian writer who was imprisoned and, and tortured in, in communist labor camps, um, 
I think had more reason than most to look at a group of people with just complete disdain. He had these guards that were just like uh, mistreating him and his, and his friends and abusing him. He hadn't done anything wrong to be imprisoned. But as he reflected on these guards who were doing this great evil in the world, in, the, in running this camp, his realisation was that these were just ordinary people that had been able to do some horrible things. And he writes these famous words where he says, if only it, was all, it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? To know that evil isn't just something that's out there in other people, but it's something that we have to confront in ourselves will guard us against being a judgmental people. Because Jesus says if you pay attention to your heart and if you're actually honest and reflect on yourself, you'll find a problem within you. That we are capable of being bitter. We are capable of being judgmental and lustful and slanderous and greedy. Now Jesus doesn't really provide an answer for this problem in this passage, but the Gospel of Matthew is ultimately a story tracking towards the answer to this problem. Of what do we do with the reality that when we actually look at ourselves, we find something broken within us, something evil, something sinful, that we need new hearts, that our, our biggest issue isn't that we need our hands washed or some, something to change about how we, li- we live our lives, but we need our hearts washed, that our hearts are sewers. We need a clean out. And this is the reason that Jesus came. Jesus came into this world to solve the problem of the heart. At the cross, he took our, our moral failing, our internal filth and our sin on himself and died. And in doing so, he gave us an exchange that we would be able to have his moral perfection, his goodness, his purity in, in, in instead. That we might be in that moment to be justified, be made right, declared innocent and good and, and, and right based on what Jesus had done. And then on the other side of that, to be set on a path of over time being made more like him. That as followers of Jesus, one of our key calls is to wake up each morning and to, to join in the fight against evil. But to know that that isn't a fight between us and some other group out there, but that's a fight between us and ourselves, and our own sinful natures and temptation and inclinations. And if that is what you believe about yourself, if you believe that you're only declared good because of what Jesus has done, if you believe that your, your main struggle that you need to commit to is actually the struggle of your own heart and be made more like Jesus, then when you look around and see cause to judge others or look down on others, you can't. You can only come at it with humility. You can, you can empathize with others failing and, and falling and seek to lead them to where healing can be found. So I want to encourage you, if you're someone here today who's exploring exploring Jesus, and even if it's been stuffed through, through this, this passage, which you're like, that's, there's confusing stuff in there, there's weird stuff in there. I just want to say to you, there is actually a hope in Jesus. In Jesus, there is an answer to the problem of our hearts. There is a way to actually be made new and whole again. And if that is in any way something you want to find out more about, then come along to Alpha today. If you've got time after this, it's you know, only in an hour to be starting up in, in our church building up on Darling Street. Come and join us. Come and explore this truth and this reality. But for everyone else, um, those of you who, are, um, who know this Jesus, who, who understand what he has done for you, in a moment as we do these, these last couple of songs, we're going to be able to do communion, which we haven't done for some time. 
which is they, you know, eating some bread, drinking some juice, and, and doing that to remember what Jesus has done for us. And I would encourage you to do that, to do that with a sense of humility, to do that with a, with a posture of recognizing that you are not good on your own. You have not done things right. You have not made yourself perfect, but Jesus has. That we are clean in him, and we, and we are freed. Freed from the worry of, of what others think of us, but above all, freed from the need to make ourselves look good compared to others. That we might actually be able to go out into this week and embody the reality that we, we are humble people We've been saved only because of what Jesus has done. And our goal in this life is to lead others to that same truth. So I'm going to spend some time praying now. Heavenly Father, I just want to just thank you for your word and thank you um, that ultimately in you, we have a way to have new hearts. When we look into ourselves, we see that we are sometimes judgmental, sometimes greedy, we think bitter thoughts, we think lustful thoughts, we, we want to live our own way and make ourselves the authority and, and, and ignore you, and we've done this in so many ways. But in you, we have an answer. You came to this world to, to show us that being right and righteous and good isn't just falling into some, some divide, by actually understanding what you've done for us. We just pray that this truth would go deep, that we'd be able to keep reflecting on that now, that it would actually be able to change us and inform us in our lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.